Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again tackle a topic pertinent in today's sport climate, sport protest. Beginning with a brief history of protests in America, we will then move to discuss the history of sport protests, breaking down not only why athletes engage in protests, but also what those protests say about our society as a whole. So, if you ever wondered when athletes first began to use their platform to speak out against the government and ruling bodies, or why so many people seem to push back against athletes who participate in protests, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to tackle something that we haven't tackled before on this podcast, and that is the topic of protesting, and more specifically, the use of sport as a platform to engage in protest. Now, the notion of protesting is not something that is new in this country. Before America was even established as a sovereign country, the people who lived here often took to protesting, boycotts, and other acts of civil disobedience to express their disapproval or objection to what was happening at home and around the world. If you fast forward 250 years later, Americans still engage in actions aimed at speaking up against laws, policies, and the actions of the government and its officials. As time has passed, though, one thing has remained fairly constant, and that is the form and the acts of civil disobedience people engage in. And even more important for our conversation today, the world of sport has oftentimes been at the center of these acts of protest in America and around the world. But before we get into the history of protests in sport, let's take a step back and first look at a brief history of protest in America as a whole. And then we can move to discuss, just like so many other things in life, how sport mirrors what is happening in society. So if we go back and we look at the history of the United States, just as we have done with some of our past podcasts on sport law and sport history, you will find that protests are not a modern day creation and neither are the acts that accompany them. In fact, if you remember back to your high school history class, I can even argue that protesting is a fundamental American value. To make this argument though, we first have to go back in time a bit and look at what was happening not only in the colonies pre-1776, but also what was happening around the world. As I think we all know, before the Revolutionary War began in 1775, what is now the Eastern United States was a set of British colonies. Founded in large part due to the quest of various groups for religious freedom, the colonies operated under British law and thus were subject to the whims of the king and Great Britain's parliament. As such, when the Seven Year War ended in 1763, just as a side note, the Seven Year War is also known in America as the French and Indian War and was fought between Britain and France and the Native Americans. At the same time, we call it the Seven Year War because a war was also being fought in Europe between Persia and Russia, France, Austria, and Sweden. But at the end of this war, Britain had accumulated a massive amount of debt as a result of fighting against the French and the Native Americans. And the British Parliament, in order to pay off that debt, 
turned to the American colonies to try to find a way to generate some money. As History.com puts it, quote, The British government looked to its North American colonies as an untapped source of revenue, end quote. So how do you create revenue from the colonies? Easy. You start to place taxes on them. More specifically, in 1765, the British Parliament passed something called the Stamp Act, which was, quote, the first direct internal tax ever levied on the colonists. That doesn't mean it was the first tax that was placed on them, because we had previous acts like the Sugar Act of 1764, which had been around before the Stamp Act. But these acts were seen more as a way to restrict and regulate trade in the colonies rather than tax them. Additionally, a lot of these earlier taxes weren't highly regulated and were pretty laid back in being a force. The Stamp Act, however, placed a tax on all paper documents in the colonies, something that had been going on in Britain since 1694. So things like legal documents, ship papers, wills, licenses, newspapers, pamphlets, advertisements, bills of sales, calendars, any kind of declaration, pleas of the court, inventory, testimonials, affidavits, bills, court orders, all of these types of things, as well as all blank pieces of paper, all of that stuff was taxed, and all that money went directly to the British government to help pay the debt incurred from the French-Indian War. However, the act is largely considered a complete failure. It actually only ended up generating 3,338 pounds in total, which is far less than the anticipated 60,000 pounds per year the government expected. The reason for the failure? Protest. Before the act even went into law, the colonists heavily opposed the tax, noting they thought it was wrong for the parliament and the king to impose direct taxes on them when they had no representation in parliament to speak on their behalf. The colonist leaders gathered and discussed their objections to the tax and wrote petitions to the king noting how they felt. However, it wasn't these petitions that got the act repealed within a year, but more so the protests of the people in the colonies. As History.com describes it, quote, the most famous popular resistance took place in Boston, where opponents of the Stamp Act, calling themselves the Sons of Liberty, enlisted the rabble of Boston in opposition to the new law. This mob paraded through the streets with an effigy of Andrew Oliver, Boston's stamp distributor, which they hung from the Liberty Tree and beheaded before ransacking Oliver's home. Oliver agreed to resign his commission as the stamp distributor. Similar events transpired in other colonial towns as crowds mobbed the stamp distributors and threatened their physical well-being and their property. By the beginning of 1766, most of the stamp distributors had resigned their commissions, many of them under duress. Mobs in seaport towns turned away ships carrying the stamp papers from England without allowing them to discharge their cargoes. Determined colonial resistance made it impossible for the British government to bring the stamp back into effect. In 1766, Parliament repealed it. But even though the British government repealed that law, the Stamp Act was not the last tax imposed on the colonies. The British Parliament followed it up in 1767 with the Townsend Acts, which imposed duties on British china, lead, paint, paper, and tea imported to the colonies. Now, as with the Stamp Act, the Townsend Acts were designed to help the British government raise money from the colonies, which they thought were paying far less than their fair share of the debt. 
The colonialists, though, continued to reject the act and the corresponding taxes as they still felt that they were not being represented in Parliament and that without that representation, it was not fair for them to be taxed. They called this an abuse of power. And as a result, they continued to protest and organize boycotts against the taxed British imports and threatened to just start making their own goods. Again, relying on History.com, they note, quote, With the help of the Sons of Liberty, which, as we mentioned before, is a secret society of American business leaders who coined the term taxation without representation. With the help of the Sons of Liberty, 24 towns in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island agreed to boycott British goods in January of 1768. With the exception of necessities, such as fishing hooks and wire, New England merchants agreed not to import British goods for one year. New York following suit in April with an even more restrictive non-importation agreement. In response to the protests, the British sent troops to occupy Boston and quell the unrest. End quote. They sent, in fact, 2,000 troops to Boston in 1769, and the tension built between the protesters and the troops, and it finally came to a head on a famous date, March 5th, 1770. It is on this date when a British soldier fired into an angry mob, killing five American colonialists in the event, and that event became known throughout history as the Boston Massacre. Now, coincidentally, on that same day, without even knowing that what was happening in the colonies, the British Parliament voted to repeal all the taxes on the goods, except for the tax on tea. Why did they refuse to take the tax off the tea? Well, historians say they wanted to keep the tax in place to show that they still had the right to tax the colonies, and due to the fact that they didn't want to completely give in to the protesters. However, many colonialists still were upset and they continued to boycott English tea, which greatly reduced the British tea marketplace. At the same time, the British tea marketplace was being reduced by the colonists because they were also smuggling in Dutch tea into the colonies and avoiding having to pay a tax altogether. All of this combined to greatly hurt the financial status of the British-owned East India Company a company that was a key part of their economy. All that leads us in 1773 to the British Parliament in response to the struggles of the East India Company to again pass another tax designed to generate money from the colonies. However, unlike the Stamp Act or the Townsend Acts, the Tea Act was designed to help raise money and bail out the East India Company. The act gave the company the right to ship tea directly from India to the colonies without first stopping in England and granted the company the sole right and thus a monopoly on the sale of tea in America. The existing tax on the tea that was brought about by the Townsend Act stayed in place as well, but without having to stop in England and having to pay a tax there, the company was able to reduce the cost of tea, which the British government thought would appease the colonialists and stop any type of protest that might occur. However, they couldn't have been more wrong, as the act allowed the East India Company to sell tea directly to consumers, thus cutting out the colonial merchants and costing the colonial people money. This, combined with the continued belief that taxation without representation was wrong, led to one of the most well-known protests in the history of the colonies in America in general, the Boston Tea Party. Now, leading up to the Tea Party, groups of colonists, as they had before with protesting other acts, 
continue to boycott tea. They continue to intimidate the company's workers. They continue to force ships to turn away without dropping off their cargo. But all this came to a head on December 16, 1773, in Griffin's Wharf in Boston, when a group of protesters led by the Sons of Liberty again disguised themselves as Native Americans, boarded East India Company's ships, and dumped 342 chests of tea into the harbor, destroying what is in today's money $2 million worth of product. It's important to note that not all the colonial leaders were in favor of these actions, as people like Ben Franklin insisted the East India Company be repaid for their lost tea, and he even offered to pay the company for their losses himself. In the end though, these protests, marches, rallies, boycotts, and even destruction of property, all were done to speak up against the perceived injustices that were being imposed on the colonies by the British government. As I mentioned before, the American colonists who were being hurt financially by these acts did not believe it was right for the government to impose taxes on its people without giving the people representation in the process of determining the taxes themselves. When the British government continued to ignore those complaints and go forward with taxation plans, the colonists stood up and loudly and angrily and at times destructively protest the actions of the government, ultimately leading to the greatest form of protest when in 1776 they issued a declaration of independence from the British Empire, stating, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new governments, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing inevitably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under the absolute disposition, it is the right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their formal systems of government. If we fast forward to after the Revolutionary War and the ratification of the United States Constitution in 1788, to the writing of the Bill of Rights, you can further see the importance of protest to the Founding Fathers. Just as we discuss in our Fourth Amendment podcast about illegal search and seizure, the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution shine considerable light onto what was taking place both at the time and in previous years under British rule. Based off of what we've talked about just so far, it's easy to see the value the colonists and now the founding fathers placed on being able to protest what they believe to be abuses of government power. So it makes sense that a part of the First Amendment of the Constitution says, quote, 
Congress shall make no laws respecting the rights of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Meaning, the government cannot make a law or inhibit the ability of its people to peacefully assemble, to peacefully protest as a means of speaking up against the government. Now, it wasn't long before this core principle of America was first truly tested with George Washington as president in 1794. Just as with the French and Indian War, the American Revolution brought with it considerable debt to the United States, and more particularly, the individual states. The short version is, the federal government decided to assume the individual state's debt. And to pay for that debt, Congress passed a tax on whiskey in 1791. However, similar to the taxes imposed by the British before the war, the tax on whiskey was upsetting to many, especially small brewers of whiskey, who were hit significantly harder by the tax than larger brewing companies. So, as with the British taxes, many just refused to pay the tax. They even threatened the tax collectors with violence. The threats and the violence got particularly bad in Pennsylvania, and Washington was forced to send more than 12,000 militiamen to the state, leading them himself Washington met with the protesters and was able to dispel much of the protests without any form of military action. All of this became known as the Whiskey Rebellion, which is an important part of American history for many reasons, including that it affirmed the powers of the federal government in large part, and for our conversation today, its importance stands in showing that protests in America against government actions are as old and fundamentally American as anything else. In fact, we can even go throughout history and we can continue to see numerous diverse groups of people protesting against the government. For example, we had the women's suffrage movement, which began in the mid to late 1800s and went through the 1920s. Here, Americans, particularly women, held large-scale protests fighting for the rights of women to vote. All of the work of the protests culminated in the passing of the 19th Amendment, which states, quote, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. We also have the labor movement, which began as far back as the 1700s and gained considerable momentum with the Industrial Revolution and went through the early 1900s. With the labor movement, protesters went on strike, refusing to work and organizing rallies to protest their treatment by factories and the safety conditions of those factories. All this continued to lead over time to new laws regulating working conditions and the continual recognition of labor unions and the increased power granted to the workers over the organization. We have the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, which fought for equal treatment of all Americans, and culminated in the March on Washington in 1963, a protest that saw more than 200,000 people gather in Washington, D.C., and helped lead to the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We have anti-war protests, gay rights protests, and anti-globalization protests. We have Occupy Wall Street, the Women's March, the Million Man's March. There's the Anti-Nuclear Weapon March and the March for Lives and thousands of other protests across the history of our country. 
all to varying levels of success, but all done to speak up against perceived injustices, just as the colonialists protested the British government in being taxed without representation. So while you might not agree with all these causes or the protests, it's impossible to believe that the act of protesting itself isn't American, that it isn't rooted in the founding of our country, and that it is not a fundamental part of American culture, society, and government. Now, at this point, you're probably wondering, what does all this have to do with sports? Well, one of the guiding principles of sport management, that is, one of the core reasons that scholars like myself teach sports in higher education is because we fundamentally believe that sport in and of itself serves as a microcosm for our society. That means that sport elevates what is happening in our world and shines a light on it. Or, as Dr. Stanley Eatson puts it, quote, Analysts of our society are inundated with data. They are faced with problems of sorting out the important from the less important, and with discerning social patterns of behavior and their meaning. They need shortcuts to ease this task. Focusing on sport is simply such a technique for understanding the complexities of a larger society. Sport is an institution that provides scientific observers with a convenient laboratory within which to examine values, socialization, stratification, and bureaucracy, to name a few structures and processes that also exist at a societal level. The types of games people choose to play, the degree of competitiveness, the types of rules, the constraints of the participations, the groups that do and do not benefit under the existing arrangements, the rate and the type of change, and the reward system in sport provides us with a microcosm of our society in which sport is embedded. So using this idea and now understanding the core American value of protesting, let's move to discuss the history of sport protest and see how they reflect society and what we can learn and take away from them. As far back as 56 BC, individuals noted the importance and value of sport in protesting and speaking directly to leaders. They noted that leaders attended sporting events, thus giving the athlete a unique power amongst the common man to speak directly to them. As Mark Tylus noted at the time, quote, in truth, there are three places in which the opinion of the Roman people may be asserted in greatest degree. At speeches, the assemblies, and at the games and exhibitions of the gladiators. One of the first documented protests in sport occurred for this very reason on January 13th, 532 AD, at a chariot race in Constantinople. At this time, the Byzantine society, which held its capital in Constantinople, was ruled by Emperor Justinian. In early January of 532 AD, a riot broke out in the city where Justinian raised taxes and sought to end much of the government's corruption as part of his plan to improve the empire. Justinian quickly quelled the riots, though, through use of brute force, and the leaders of the riot were captured and sentenced to death. They, however, escaped and were hidden away for protection, which brings us back to the chariot race on January 13th. The chariot races were held in a massive hippodrome that held massive crowds and pitted two teams, the Blues and the Greens, against each other. Before the race was scheduled to begin, though, members of both the Blue and the Greens, quote, loudly pleaded with the Emperor to show mercy to the two men that had escaped from the gallows. 
when no response was forthcoming, both factions, that is, both sets of fans in the stands, began to cry, Nike, Nike, the chant so often heard in the Hippodrome to support one of the charioteers or another, was now directed against Justinian. The Hippodrome erupted in violence, and soon the mob took to the streets, end quote. The riot turned into another rebellion against the emperor, who eventually succeeded in ending things through the use of his military in killing approximately 30,000 people. Well, this is a grim event in history. It is the first recorded record of athletes using their platform to speak up against the actions of a ruling body or government and protest what was going on. Examining this case also further shows just how sport is a microcosm of our society, as what happened in the Hippodrome was truly a reflection of how the Constantinopian people felt. Moving forward in time, another ancient sport competition has served as a major route of protest throughout history and into the modern day, and that sport competition is the Olympics. Now, we talked a lot about the Olympics in a past podcast we did focusing specifically on Rule 50. But just as a reminder, the modern Olympics were first held in 1896 as a means to promote physical activity, promote sport participation around the world, and utilize sport for the good of humanity. The games were set to take place every four years, beginning with that first one in 1896. But the International Olympic Committee also put into place a plan to hold a set of games at the midpoint of that four-year cycle that they called the intercalated games. And those games were to take place in the half point of every Olympic cycle in Athens. These games, though, were pretty short-lived. They were actually only held once. But the one time that they were held in 1906 served to be quite memorable as it was the first modern IOC-sponsored event that saw an athlete protest. And that athlete was Peter O'Connor, who was from Ireland. Now, at the time, the rules of the game stated that the only athletes that could participate were those that were nominated by the National Olympic Committee, which oversaw the athletes within a given country. The problem was that Ireland didn't have an NOC, so instead of being sent to represent Ireland, O'Connor was sent to represent Great Britain, who did have an NOC. The controversy arises because Peter and two of his teammates didn't find out that they were representing Great Britain and not Ireland until they were at the games and registering for their competition and getting ready to compete. This allegedly outraged Peter due to the fact that in 1906, Ireland was battling for independence from the British. Anyways, Peter ended up finishing second in a controversial long jump competition, and at the awards ceremony... When the Union flag of Great Britain was raised to celebrate his silver medal, he climbed the flagpole, which was guarded by one of his teammates, and waved the Irish flag to protest the British government. Again, the actions of an athlete in the stadium served as a microcosm to what was happening in the world at the time and brought a bit of light to what was seen as an important issue. If we move forward to the 1964 Olympic Games in Tokyo, we see an instance where it's not the athletes that are protesting and making a statement, but rather the IOC itself, as they use the games to make a political protest and speak out against an oppressive movement. They banned South Africa from participating in the games due to the country's refusal to condemn the apartheid. 
Four years later, in the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City, two American athletes used the games as a platform to protest injustice, mirroring in many ways what the IOC had done the Olympics before. To understand the acts of protest, though, you need to understand a little bit about what was happening in American society in 1968. As we mentioned earlier, the 60s in America were a time of civil rights protests across the entire country. Citizens, in particular minorities and more specifically African Americans, were pushing back more and more against racial inequities that had been going on since the country was founded. Though slavery had been abolished almost 100 years prior, there were still systematic issues, Jim Crow laws and flat out racism and racial injustices taking place all over America. The 1960s saw a number of African-American leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X come to prominence as they not only spoke of these racial injustices, but also offered solutions and engaged in protests, marches, boycotts, and sit-ins. Countless people stood up and engaged in these protests and sought to enact meaningful changes leading in large part to the previously mentioned Civil Rights Act of 1964. However, just because the law was passed doesn't mean that the injustices were rooted out and stopped, especially overnight. And so people continued to fight for the rights of minorities and protest as a means of getting their voices heard. That was the stage for the 1968 Olympics where Tommy Smith and John Carlos went to Mexico City to compete in the Olympic Games. During those games, they both ended up performing well, finishing first and third respectfully in the 200 meters. Just as Peter O'Connor had done before them, they decided to use the award platform as a place for protest. They took the stand with no shoes, wearing a pin, beaded necklace, and a single black glove. As the national anthem played, they raised their glove to the sky as a symbol of black power. As the Washington Post says, quote, the protests had been something the two athletes carefully planned. As Smith and Carlos walked to the podium, they took off their shoes to protest poverty. They wore beads and scruff to protest lynchings. And when the national anthem was played, they lowered their heads in defiance and raised their fists in a black power salute that rocked the world. End quote. As is often the case with protests throughout history, the protests of Smith and Carlos were seen as negative acts that violated the heart of Olympics and sports. They were cast out of the games and labeled as anti-American by many. But I think what we've learned so far is that neither of those statements are really true. Protesting peacefully is at its core a valuable American principle. And sport throughout history has been shown to be an important place to spread a message to large groups of individuals. This fact is further validated if you fast forward to the 1980 Olympics when the President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, announced that the Americans and the American athletes were boycotting the games in Moscow to protest the Soviet Union's failure to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, a country they evaded in 1979. Other countries, including Canada, West Germany, and Japan, joined in the protest, which four years later... In 1984, was reciprocated by the Soviet Union boycotting the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. The Olympics have not been the only source of American protests through sports, though. In the late 19th century, it became fairly common for professional white baseball players and other athletes to protest and boycott games in which they were being forced to play against black athletes. 
As Mark Hoger writes, quote, on at least four occasions between 1883 and 1888, Chicago White Sockings baseball teams led by Cap Anderson refused to play scheduled exhibitions against minor league teams featuring at least one black player. In 1887, eight members of the St. Louis Browns forced cancellations of an exhibition game between the Browns and the all-black Cuban Giants by declining to play. John L. Sullivan, heavyweight boxing champion from 1882 to 1892, repeatedly refused to defend his title against black opponents. End quote. Again, these actions shine light on society at the time because we mentioned post-Civil War America oftentimes sought to separate black and white Americans and treat them differently through the likes of Jim Crow laws or institutional racism, such as not allowing them to participate in various sport competitions, racism was rampant. These issues are still present today, as in recent years we've seen athletes like Colin Kaepernick take a knee during the national anthem to protest the injustices perpetrated upon African Americans, speaking specifically up against the police brutality against blacks. Likewise, players in the NBA in 2014 refused to wear normal warm-up shirts, instead opting for a black shirt that read, I can't breathe, as a form of protest against police brutality, and specifically the killing of Eric Gardner, a 29-year-old unarmed black man who died after being put in a chokehold by a New York City police officer. Outside of protesting racial issues, athletes have used sport to protest political issues, just as Jimmy Carter did with the 1980 Olympics. Perhaps the most famous athlete to engage in a combination of political and racial protests was Muhammad Ali. Ali, who is a devout Muslim and the heavyweight champion of the world, was drafted by the United States in 1966 for the Vietnam War, but refused to serve due to his religious beliefs and in protest to the history of black suppression and racism in America. Ali put it best when he said, quote, why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? No, I'm not going to go 10,000 miles from home to help murder and burn another poor nation simply to continue the domination of white slave masters on the darker people of the world. This is the day when such evils must come to an end. I have been warned that to take such a stand would be to put my prestige in jeopardy and could cost me to lose millions of dollars, which should accrue to me as champion. But I have said it once and I will say it again. The real enemy of my people is right here. I will not disgrace my religion, my people, or myself by becoming a tool to enslave those who are fighting for their own justice, freedom, and equality. If I thought the war was going to bring freedom and equality to 22 million of my people, they wouldn't have to draft me. I would join tomorrow. But I either have to obey the law of the land or the laws of Allah. I have nothing to lose by standing up for my beliefs. So I'll go to jail. We've been in jail for 400 years. End quote. Refusing to serve, Ali was arrested and convicted and his titles were stripped from him. The boxing commissions around the country refused to let him fight. Ali later had his convictions overturned by the United States Supreme Court in 1971, but will forever be remembered for his protest and for what he stood up for. Likewise, in 1996, Muhammad Abdul Rahouf, an athlete for the Denver Nuggets in the NBA, 
famously refused to stand up during the national anthem, stating, quote, he viewed the flags as a symbol of racism and oppression and regarded standing for the anthem in conflict with his Muslim faith, end quote. In addition to protesting racial and political issues, athletes throughout American history have also stood up to protest the organizations that govern them in much the same way that the labor movement of the 1800s did. For example, in 1964, the National Basketball Association players sought to form a union and gain recognition by the owners. However, the owners and the commission of the league fought against the union with things coming to a head at the All-Star game that year. Right before the game was actually set to be played, the players gathered in the locker room and discussed boycotting the game entirely, which was set to be broadcast live on ABC in prime time. They said they would boycott unless the league recognized the union and instituted a pension plan for the players. Ultimately, the threat of protest and boycott worked, and the league agreed to the players' terms. Similarly, other professional sport leagues like the NFL and Major League Baseball have seen their players come together in unions and go on strike to protest the treatment of players as well as the players' wages and the benefits they receive. Baseball, having probably the strongest union of all, has gone on strike multiple times to protest the treatment of the players. In 1972 was the first time that the players went on strike over demands for a pension plan. This was followed in 1981, then 1985, and then 1994 and 1995 over issues that included free agency, salary arbitration, and much, much more. During this time, the NFL also went on strike in 1982 and then again in 1987 to protest similar issues and protest the play and treatment of their players by the league. Which brings us back again to the NBA in the 2014. The players didn't strike that year, but rather in an act of silent protest against then Los Angeles Clippers owner Donald Sterling, who was caught on tape making racial comments. The Clippers wore warm-up jerseys inside out. They wore black socks and black armbands or black wristbands to protest the team and the organization. After warm-ups, they went over to the center of the court and removed their inside-out shirts and placed them in the center of the floor. Their protests and the comments of their leaders ended up forcing Donald Sterling to sell the team. Now, this has by no means been an all-encompassing list of American sport protests, as other key actors like Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Kurt Flood, Arthur Ashe, and Billie Jean King all engage in active protests over the years. The fact of the matter is that the more you research the topic of sport protests, the more you learn just how deeply ingrained they are in our sporting culture. Which brings us back to the central questions of this podcast posed in the introduction. Why is it that we see so many protests centered around sport? And why are so many people getting so upset about it? The first question's answer goes back to the ancient Romans. If you remember, they noted that sport arenas are a unique place where athletes have the attention of not only their fans, but a diverse group of people from all over society. The rich and the poor alike watch the athletes perform, as do individuals of all races, ethnicities, and religions. The sports arena thus serves as a prime place to take a stand and have your voice heard by a large, diverse group of people. And what we have hopefully learned here today is that the voice of the athlete and their actions are just a reflection of the society they live in. When Bill Russell went to Lexington, Kentucky in 1961 to play a preseason game, only to be refused service at a local restaurant, 
He didn't just shut up and take it. No, he protested. Like so many other African Americans did at the time. He took his platform and he used it to spread a message that we should not condone racism in our country. He boycotted the game that night as many other African Americans held boycotts in the 1960s on similar businesses. In the 1970s, when women around the country were fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment and equal treatment, Billie Jean King used her platform as a tennis champion to fight for the U.S. Open to award equal pay to the women's champion, threatening to boycott if they didn't. In this way, in the view of sport as a microcosm of what is happening in society, sport protests are not an outlier, and they're not something to be ignored, but rather, they're a reflection of what is happening in the current day, a reflection of what the people are hoping to change and improve. The second question becomes a bit harder to answer. As people become more upset with sport protests and protests in general for numerous reasons. In general, though, protests are designed to change the status quo and to push back against the ruling groups of our society. This was the case with the Boston Tea Party and remains the case today with an athlete like Colin Kaepernick. Oftentimes, that pushback scares the people that are a part of the status quo as they are the ones that are most benefiting from how things are going. Think of it this way. Why did the factory owners during the Industrial Revolution push back against the labor movement? Or why did Major League Sport Team owners push back against player unions? Because the owners are the ones with the power. They are the ones with the money. They are the ones that have the most to lose if things change. If we go back to our discussion of the Townsend Act, the colonists engaged in massive protests against the British Parliament, and the Parliament pushed back, continually citing the idea that they had the right to tax the colonists as much as they wanted. They fought the protests and tried to force them to go along with the taxes because they held power over the colonists and they wanted that power dynamic to be maintained. They wanted to maintain, in large part, because they didn't want the status quo to change. They didn't want to lose the power that they themselves possessed. We see the same thing in sports, especially in cases of protests against the actions of the league. When players push back against the owners, the owners fight back so that they don't lose the power they hold. We saw it with Ali protesting the Vietnam War and refusing to serve. The government didn't just let it happen, they pushed back. We saw it with Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who had the institution push back against their acts and kick them out of the Olympic Games, and later establish a rule, Rule 50, which explicitly bans athletes from protesting. And more recently, we saw it with Colin Kaepernick, who many owners worried that his protests threatened their bottom line, threatened their ability to make money. And so they pushed back, and they essentially blackballed him from the game. So a large part of people not liking sport protests is the same reason that they don't like any protests. They fear that the change that may come might hurt them. They fear that they might lose the power and the status that they have. The last point, though, deals specifically with athletes. And that is that a lot of people don't like sport protests because they don't think athletes are educated enough on the issues and they say they should just stick to sports. We have talked about this in past podcasts on fallacies. Just because an individual is an athlete doesn't mean that they are not educated on an issue. 
And just because someone is a professor or doctor or lawyer or politician doesn't mean that they are educated on the same issue. A person's title rarely dictates the knowledge they have on a topic. And so we should be careful in saying things like just shut up and dribble. Because if you look at our history, some of the most educated and meaningful protests and progressions in our society were started by athletes. Like Bill Russell, like Jim Brown, like Jackie Robinson, like Muhammad Ali, like Billie Jean King. All were athletes who used the platform provided to them by sports to speak out, protest, and push back. Just as our founding fathers did, and just as they said was a necessity in the Declaration of Independence. With all that said, hopefully in this podcast today, you've learned a little about not only the history of protests in sports, but also about the history of protesting in America. My goal was to show what I've learned the more I read about the topic. And that is that protesting is a fundamental part of what makes us American and a fundamental part of sports. So next time you see an athlete protesting, instead of jumping to a snap decision about the act, think about how sport is a microcosm of society and ask yourself what societal issue they are raising. Ask questions, do research, and learn what both sides of the argument are so you can be better informed and hopefully help to bring out a positive, peaceful change. If you have any questions about the history of sport protests, or if you think there's anything that we missed, please feel free to shoot us a message on Instagram at the Sport Professor. Follow us to stay up to date on upcoming podcasts and let us know if you have any ideas for new ones. Until next time, though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.